Um, If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse verse 1 through 21 is where we're going to fix our attention this morning. How many of you watching uh, on YouTube this morning have had the experience of having a mother or a father constantly point you to Jesus? Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a, a co-worker or, a, uh, or a, a fellow student in class that constantly pointed you to Jesus, that constantly shared the gospel with you, and it was the result of that constant poking and prodding and pushing that drew you, um, by God's grace, into fellowship with him. Maybe that's not your story. How many of you have had the story where you um, were, were possibly in a near-death moment, you were on the road and you, and you had an accident that should have killed you, or you know of people who had an accident that should have killed them, or you hear of these stories where people were shot and they should have died, and, and, and in those moments, they, they saw the divine hand of God at work in real time and said to themselves, I'm ready. I'm ready to lay it down. I'm ready to give my life to the Lord as a result of this divine incident. Maybe that's you, maybe that's somebody you know, maybe that's a TV show that you've watched. You see, we have, uh, all of us have either experienced the grace of God that drew us in through this natural effort or through this supernatural effort, but it all served for one purpose, and that was to bring about God's divine end and and to allow us to embrace his divine message. As we look this morning at the Christmas story, I'm reminded that even the Christmas story has a way of showing us this divine message through both natural means and supernatural means. There's a natural moment in the very first half of this passage, this text that we're looking at, but then we see a supernatural moment happening in the latter half of this text, and they both serve the same purposes, which is to support this divine message that is coming forward from the throne of heaven. This divine proclamation that a savior has arrived. If you would, please look at the the, the first half of this text. In verse one, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. We are probably familiar with the concept of a census, especially since we just finished one here in our country in 2020. Hopefully you participated in it. But nevertheless, if you didn't, according to the Oxford Dictionary, it's in, it, a census is an official, official count or survey of a population. Our census is used to determine the number of seats that each state has in the U.S. House of Representatives, and it's used to determine how federal funds are distributed to cities and states. In other words, it's a pretty big deal to us and a pretty big deal for us. You know, the ancient Roman census that we're reading about here was primarily done for taxation purposes. Some say that the reason Joseph and Mary in this text have have to go to Bethlehem, because we we read that, that verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from from the town of Nazareth, to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Some say the reason that they had to go 
was because the census at, at, at that time required people to return to their place of birth to be counted. Others believe, though, that, 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 they returned, that the return that Joseph was making back to his hometown signified that Joseph had property in this town that needed to be accounted for. Either way, the most important point is that they are back in Bethlehem. Here's why that's important. Before Joseph and Mary were ever known, it was declared in ancient prophecy that the Savior would come out of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem. God literally moved nations to fulfill his declaration and confirm his promises of a Savior being born in Bethlehem. The census had to happen, and it had to happen at this time that God orchestrated for it to happen so that Joseph and Mary could be in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. So while we read in verse 1 that Mary and Joseph were brought to Bethlehem as a result of a decree by Caesar Augustus, a political decree over, uh, ordered by natural authorities, we know that ultimately they were in Bethlehem as a result of a divine decree of God ordered eternities ago by God. Caesar Augustus hadn't ordered them back on his own accord. God ordered Caesar Augustus to order them back. You see, the politics of the moment that we're in appear to be bringing God's people, or rather, rather it appears to be sending God's people all over the place. We see a lot of Christians living and acting as if this truth, this truth that we're reading about right now, the politics of that moment was God bringing people together even in the, or through the politics. And we seem to miss that. We think that that's not true for our moment. We think that somehow God is outside of this moment that we have to orchestrate or we have to engineer God's movement in this moment. And it doesn't matter what group you talk to. They are of the same opinion. If, if one party gets in office, then all hope will be lost for all of us. And like I said, it doesn't matter what group you talk to. They're saying the same thing. Can I share something with you? We can argue over the policies. We can argue over one mayor, what one mayor can do for a city or what one governor can do for a state or what one president can do for a nation. And those things matter and they are important. And as responsible citizens, we must weigh how best to use our voice and our vote in those things. But what we cannot do is treat those things as ultimate. What man authorizes or decrees cannot thwart what God authorizes and decrees for his people. In the same way that he executed his decree, even through the decrees of power-hungry wicked men in Rome, he too also can do the same thing in this moment and has done the same thing throughout human history. And that's where your faith and hope has to rest. 
no matter who's in office. Remember Proverbs 21 and 1, it says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The scope of God's use of the natural for the arrival of the sun doesn't stop there, however. Look at verse 6, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now that they are in Bethlehem, Mary can have the baby that she has been supernaturally given by the Lord. Remember, her and Joseph are not married yet. They are betrothed, engaged, and Mary is still, in fact, a virgin. And so this pregnancy is a miraculous gift from God. So that's the supernatural part. But the natural part happens in the least glamorous way possible. There's three unique indicators that usually jump out to us during Christmas time when we tell this story. The first indicator is that Mary wrapped this child in swaddling clothes or cloths, as ESV renders it. The second indicator is that the inn didn't have any room for Mary Joseph and this child. And then the third and the final indicator is that this baby was born in a manger. Let's take them one at a time. First, Though memorable in our minds, there is nothing overly significant or unique about Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes. It was a common Jewish practice, and, and to not do it was a sign, actually, of a lack of care for the child. When you look at, it, when you look at for example, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, and God is speaking to Israel about their, uh, uh, about their initial abandoned state as a people. He says through Israel this in verse 4 of chapter 6, 16. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord, was, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, listen, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. So the swaddling cloths signified a child who was being taken care of. But it was happening under very lackluster common circumstances, which leads me to our next memorable element in this story, the, the end. When we talk about the end, we typically envision the end as some kind of downscale ancient motel, but that is not what is actually being described here in this passage. Now, that may be what's being described in other passages, for example, the Good Samaritan, but it's not here. What Luke is most likely referring to is an actual home. And there was no room in the typical areas where a family might be given, a guest family might be given to rest for the evening, which leads to the final unique memorable moment in this story, the manger. A manger, while it sounds very cute, is actually not very cute at all. A manger is an actual animal feeding box. Nothing fancy about it. And the likely reason for that is because they were left with no other alternative but to lodge in either some neighboring cave or stable next to one of the homes that they attempted to sleep in, but they didn't have any room in the home. The following quote sheds some light on the layout that we should envision when we paint this picture in our minds. Quote, the footprint of a typical first century Palestine dwelling was a rectangle divided into three spaces, 
a large central room with a stable of animals on one end and a guest room on the other. All three rooms normally had separate entrances. The guest room was an attached, was an attached guest room separated from the central room by a solid wall. The stable was separated from the central room by a half wall, thus allowing the family to feed animals without going outdoors. There's a great likelihood that they were in that room, the stable with the animals in a manger. Again, some of the least glamorous circumstances in human history for the most important birth in all of history. From the very beginning of this arrival, God was teaching us something. It would be supernatural in his working, but oftentimes very ordinary in his packaging. We say over and over again, Jesus never came with the backdrop of an earthly king because his kingdom was and is not of this world. He didn't come to be laid in the palaces amongst royalty. He placed himself in a manger amongst the lowly. Like the journey to Bethlehem, this too was divinely appointed and ordained. Recall elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus was confronted uh, for sitting with sinners and tax collectors, those typically on the outside of the religious elite. He responded in this way, Luke chapter 5, he says this, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, from the very beginning, from the outside, from a manger, this message was being communicated. A savior has arrived in the world and he will be one for all people, even those on the outside. Now, is this very common and very natural work with divine orchestration is happening to communicate this supernatural message that a savior has arrived? There is also a very, another very uncommon supernatural work taking place to communicate this divine message that a savior has arrived. Again, the natural work or the natural moment, now we look to the supernatural moment, both communicating the same divine message. In verse 8, it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I find it interesting that the shepherds, are visited by the angel at night. And he comes with the glory of the Lord shining in the darkness around them. You know, it's very typical for the brightest lights to break through in the darkest hours. Even when you think about the time in which we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Advent, we celebrate the arrival of the Savior to the world. One minister keenly noted how fitting it is that we celebrate this during the week of the shortest day of the year, December 21st, tomorrow. During this week, where our nights are the longest, it is fitting that we would acknowledge the arrival of the brightest light into the world. You know, Advent doesn't discount the reality of darkness. Life can sometimes be hard. Life can sometimes be lonely. We wrestle with sin because we were born into sin. We wrestle with relationships because those around us were born into sin as well. We struggle with 
nature, whether it be pandemics or sickness or poverty or hunger or homelessness, because this world has been corrupted by sin. You know, we don't discount the darkness, but neither do we discount the light, because into the longest nights, the light has come into the world. And that light is bringing eternal life to all those who will trust him by faith. That light is Jesus. And so this angel appears with the glory of the Lord shining around him. And the shepherds have the type of reaction that one who reads the Bible might have come to expect by now. Verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Fear. Might seem somewhat abnormal for some of us, but it is a natural response, especially if you've read through Scripture. The Old Testament servant of the Lord, Daniel, once described his encounter with a messenger from God as one that set him to trembling. The fear of this divine appearance was a natural one. Angels are mighty beings, powerful beings. The shepherds, I'm sure, know know this, but in this moment, they see this. They feel Feel this standing right in front of them. And so the fear is real. The fear is present. The fear is great, as Scripture tells us. You know, fear is great and fear is present when we stand in the face of something or someone that is bigger than us. We stand in fear when we stand in the presence of something or someone that makes us feel small. You know, me and my father, we once... uh, had this hobby where we just rode roller coasters like crazy. Like the first roller coaster that my father took me on, I might have been three years old or four years old or some crazy number, just, you know, just barely, barely high enough to even get on the thing. It might not have even been high enough. I don't even know if they were measuring us back then. But we rode roller coasters like crazy, and I did that all through my life. And we always went for the summer to some big amusement park, and we rode roller coasters. Well, well, as my father was aging, we happened to go to Dallas, and we spent some time at Six Flags. And they had this great roller coaster in Six Flags called the Texas Giant. I'm sure they, they, they may still do. The Texas Giant was this massive, massive roller coaster. Actually, it wasn't the Texas Giant. It was the, Goli- the Goliath, and it was even bigger than the Texas Giant. And one day, me and my father, we, we were there, and we said, hey, let's get on this roller coaster. It's another big, bad roller coaster that they built. And we would do our usual thing, stand in line with excitement, and we would begin to, and we would get on in the car, and then we would begin to ride um, on the track, and then the track goes up. And we're like, woo, you know, our hands are up, and we're excited, and my dad's smiling, and I'm smiling, and we're excited, and then we get up to the very top, and normally we would just start screaming, right? Ah! Well, we got to the very top this time, and I was screaming, ah! And my dad was silent, wasn't saying a word. And then we went down, and I was still screaming, yeah! And I was looking over him, and he was grabbing the seat tighter and tighter and tighter. 
He wasn't screaming anymore. He wasn't cheering. There was no smile on his face. He was just looking. And then we got off the roller coaster. And when we got off the roller coaster, I was like, Dad, you okay? What's wrong? What happened? It's like, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> getting too old for this. He felt fear. Because in that moment, he, had, he went to a height that we had never been on a roller coaster. And as he looked over, he realized how big this roller coaster was and how small he was. And at his age, it clicked. It still wasn't clicking yet for me. It's starting to click a lot more now. But it, had, but it hadn't clicked yet for me, but it clicked for him. You see, the angel that appeared before them and the glory of the Lord that shone around them made the shepherds feel small, and yet the angel was nothing more than a messenger of the truly great one. So imagine if you feel small in the presence of this angel and you are stricken with great fear in the presence of this angel, imagine the feeling of being in the presence of an almighty God. But there's another kind of fear at work here as well, not just fear, the, the fear that comes with being small in the presence of something grand, but the fear of judgment. Another Old Testament character by the name of Gideon was in the presence of an angel, but didn't realize it until the angel disappeared and vanished from him. And at that moment where the angel vanished, Gideon panicked and said in Judges chapter 6, verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. This is the translation. Oh my goodness, I'm about to die. And to the Lord, and to that, the Lord said, Fear not, you're not about to die. That's how the Lord responded to Gideon. Angels carried the power to destroy cities. You see that in Genesis 19 where, when the angels asked Lot if he has any more loved ones in Sodom and Gomorrah because the Lord has sent them to destroy the place. When an angel shows up on the scene, it could very well mean it's a wrap for you. In the, thank you. In the presence of the divine, our sin nature moves into focus. So before this angel, the shepherds have a fear. They have a fear of their finiteness, their smallness, but also quite possibly a fear of judgment that they are about to die. But what I love about this passage is what we hear next from the angel. Into that fear, the angel gives us these words. Verse 10, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The arrival of a Savior who has burst forth from the divine and entered into our humanness. He's entered into our humanity. Yes, shepherds, you are right. God has taken on flesh, and where you will find him, not in a palace, 
but in a stable, not in a royal bed with precious linens, but in an animal feeding box filled with hay. Yes, shepherds, you are right. You should fear, but fear not, because God has taken on flesh. He uses the common even to establish a sign for divine arrival. He says you're going to find them what? In that common swaddling cloths, in that common manger, in that common stable. Fear not. Though you have every right to fear because of your finiteness compared to his infiniteness, fear not. Though you have every right to fear because of your sinfulness when compared to his holiness, fear not. Fear not because we could never reach him, so he has come down to us. Fear not. Fear not. Because we would never be holy enough to stand in his presence. So he has come to cover us in his holiness by taking the punishment we deserve for sin and dying on a cross for our sins. Fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Note that we move in this text from great fear to great joy. Fear comes when we are faced with the reality of death. My father later told me after we rode the Goliath six flags over Texas that that was the first time that he was on a roller coaster. And at the top of it, in that moment, he realized, EJ, you could die on this thing. And that's why he got quiet. Like, man, you could really die on this thing. Isn't that what most fear is about? Coming face to face with the reality that we can die. Coming face to face with the reality of death. Taking it a step further, when we think about the reality of eternity, then the fear consists not just in the fact that we can die, but that after that death, we will face judgment, and that if we are found guilty, we will face an eternal death. But the angel shows up and he proclaims, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. A savior has come to save us from that judgment and that salvation will produce great joy. And that salvation has been made available for all people. And that salvation is found in the one who we call Christ the Lord. When you receive an announcement like this, what do, what do you expect to follow? What comes after Hearing an announcement like this, I'll tell you what comes. Two things in this text. One is worship. The second is response. 
Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. One theologian says it's as if the proclaiming angel rolls the curtain back after his proclamation, making way for the grand finale behind him as the angels, now a chorus of angels, Angels appear, worshiping God at the, pro- at the sound of this proclamation. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And how do they respond? Glory to God in the highest. Christ has come into the world. Salvation has come to those who were perishing. Glory to God. Can I ask you something? Does the Christmas story spark a response of worshiping you? That as you read these words and recite them in your heart, fear not because I, because I am coming to proclaim that there is good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, does that ignite worship in you? Celebration that God rescued you from the ashes. It sparks worship, but what else does it spark? A response. A response. What happens to someone? who has heard the good news of great joy, and they actually believe it. What happens to someone who begins to understand how small they are because they get a glimpse at how big God is, but then hear news about God's plan to save them through the life of his son? What happens to someone who begins to understand how sinful they are because they begin to get a glimpse of how holy God is, but then they hear news about God's plan to save them through the life of his son? What happens to someone who begins to understand this and begins to grasp the realities associated and tied to this? They draw near to the sun. They quickly draw near to the sun. If after the announcement has been declared, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you in this, uh, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. If after that announcement, we are still saying to ourselves, well, maybe I'll consider it sometime down the road. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come later. It's because we don't believe the announcement. It's because we don't believe the announcement. If somebody comes in, if somebody comes in your house right now and says, quick, 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 come to the car. I got a million dollars I want to give to you. How you move determines whether or not you believe them. 
If you say, all right, give me, let me go put some clothes on first, and I'm still in my pajamas, man. We doing city light at home today. It's because you don't believe them. If somebody comes to your house and they say, quick, 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 I got a million dollars, and you say, I believe it, then what are you doing? You're getting off the, off the couch. You're, you're, you're putting paws on city light at home. You're going to see if the million dollars is in the car. Why? Because you believe, and so the response comes. The shepherds heard the proclamation. They believed, and they responded immediately. You see, whatever has paralyzed us from making a commitment to draw near to the Savior is what we have chosen to believe is true good news of great joy. However, when we come to truly believe that in Christ there truly is good news of great joy, good news of eternal joy, good news of ultimate joy, we will make haste to draw near to the Son as he draws near to us. When the angels went away, verse 15 said, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. They made haste. But here's the other key response, the other key to our response, which the Lord has made known to us. Yes, of course, we know what the shepherds are saying here in this text. This news was announced supernaturally to them. Angels appeared where they were and declared it to them. But this is not at all that far from the same experience that every single person that responds to the message of good news of great joy has. You know, we talked about the idea that there is oftentimes natural moments that carry divine messages, and there are supernatural moments that carry divine messages. And oftentimes we are quick to only fix our attention on the supernatural moments that we can perceive and see that carry a divine message, but understand that the idea of the Lord making known to the shepherds the good news of great joy is the same thing happening to each and every single one of us when we respond to the gospel. It is the Lord making known to us the good news of great joy. Why is it that you don't respond to it after hearing it 20 times before, 100 times before, and then all of a sudden, Something clicks because the Lord has supernaturally made known to you the good news of great joy. The Lord sends his messenger to you that one last time and all of a sudden it clicks. The Lord brings a moment that allows the gospel to be illuminated and it clicks. The Lord moves in your heart in a way, just sitting in your house and he moves in your heart in a way. The Lord may be moving in someone's life right now as they're watching this video and they've heard the gospel a million times and all of a sudden the good news of great joy clicks because the Lord has made it known to them. By his spirit, he has awakened the heart to hear and respond to the message. 
Remember the scripture says no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws. And so here we see worship and here we see response because a message has been proclaimed that they can no longer sit still about. This Christmas, I pray that experience is yours. That this good news of great joy has been proclaimed to you, that this message has been heard, and you no longer can sit still. You have to move. You have to respond. You have to go and tell someone. You have to embrace it. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. God, we love you.